Good morning. My name is Pastor John. I'm the associate pastor here at East Shore. Thank you for joining us for our worship this morning. Now, as you can see from the screen, we're going to have to talk about sin today. And you, you might be thinking, what's, what is this big deal about sin? Why are Christians always talking about sin? Because outside the walls of this building, outside church, most people every day don't spend time talking about sin. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, all this stuff about sin, it might sound really strange. But if that's you, my friend, I would ask you, have you ever really thought about the consequences of the wrong things that you do? Maybe you don't believe this, but if God actually exists, then what happens when his commands are broken? Now, I also know there's a temptation for those of us who are believers in Christ to not talk about sin really all that much. We would rather spend time talking about God's grace. And God's grace is wonderful and amazing. We sang several songs about it. But you know, if we are going to really appreciate God's grace, then we need to understand the consequences of sin. Today, we're continuing our study through the book of Joshua, and we come to a passage that is truly tragic. We're about to be smacked in the face with the devastating consequences of sin. But even in this horrible episode, we're still going to see God's abundant grace. So if you're not already there, I'd ask you to please turn in your Bible to the book of Joshua, chapter 7. Joshua 7. If you'd like to use that red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, you should find it starting on page 119 and then going over to page 120. Joshua 7. Now, we're actually going to start reading the very last verse of chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 27, to help us get some context, know what's going on. But then we are going to read Joshua 7. So with that in mind, I'd ask that if you are able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's word. And then follow along as I'll read our passage for today. Joshua, starting 627, and then I'll read through chapter 7. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Again, starting in chapter 6, verse 27, we read, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, he took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel... And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? 
Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. They'll surround us, cut off our name from the earth. What will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, was taken. Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent. Behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent, brought them to Joshua, to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters, his oxen, donkeys, sheep, and his tent, all that he had. They brought them up to the valley of Achor, or the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire, stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then, then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, or the Valley of Trouble. Let's pray. Lord, when faced with this difficult passage, it's important that we see you and that we focus on you. We need you to be the one who draws our attention this morning. So God, I pray in the words of John 3.30 that you may increase 
and that I, that all of us may decrease before you. Lord, help us to be aware of the consequences of sin. And may those consequences lead us to depend on the grace, on your grace that you offer. May we trust in how you deal with sin. And God, thank you. Thank you so much for dealing with the sin of your children through the death of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's consider where we are in Scripture again. We are in the book of Joshua, continuing our study through it. This is a book about God fulfilling his promises to his people. They had spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt, but then God used a man named Moses to lead them out of Egypt, lead them toward freedom. At the beginning of this book of Joshua, Moses has been replaced by a new leader named Joshua. He's going to guide God's people into the promised land. In order to get into the land, the Lord miraculously held back the flooded waters of the Jordan River. He held back the water so his people could move into their new home. He helped them move forward by giving them victory over the city of Jericho. He supernaturally brought down the walls of that city. It was destroyed. Everything in it was dedicated to God. One city has been defeated, and now it's time for God's people to move forward. It's time for them to take the rest of the promised land. Unfortunately, that forward progress, it's about to grind to a screeching halt because of the consequences of sin. Our passage today begins with a great contrast from everything that's happened before in the book. Up until this point, God has been with the Israelites. They've won victory after victory. We just read in 627 how the Lord was with Joshua. His fame was in all the land. Joshua and his people were known and feared throughout the land of Canaan. But chapter 7 begins with the word, but. But the people, but the children of Israel broke faith. They were unfaithful to the God who was faithful to them. They committed a trespass by violating his commandments. A man named Achan, who we hear is the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, or you may have Zimri, son of Zerah, he's from the tribe of Judah, he stole some of the accursed things that had been set apart, devoted to God. And God was angry about this. He burned against the Israelites. What's interesting is it's, although it's just one man who sins, God's anger comes against all the people of Israel. And this is kind of similar to something we talked about two weeks ago. We talked about why there's so much killing in this book. And we mentioned that in our culture, we like to look at individuals and judge people on the basis of their merits. And we're right to do that. But in the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, it's often nations, it's often people groups that are in view. And so it's not really focused on what one person does as much as it is concerned about what does that one person's actions say about the whole people group. Achan sinned, so God judged his people, the Israelites. And this is God's consistent judgment when his people rebel against him. In the book of Judges, the Israelites start worshiping other gods, and we read this, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. 
Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Well, in the same way in our text, Achan stole from God, so God viewed the entire nation as responsible for his sin. However, none of the Israelites know this. None of them know that God is angry. They're focused on taking the next city in the promised land, of moving on to Ai. That word Ai, it's a name that means ruin, so the city might not have been called that in Joshua's day. Maybe it was a name given later. But in any case, the city of Jericho was 800 feet below sea level. You can see Jericho, that's why it's in the gray. It's below sea level. Ai was 2,500 feet above sea level. So if you might have noticed when we read, it talked about the armies going up to Ai because they had to go up the mountains. They had to go 3,300 feet up to get to Ai. Joshua sends some spies to check the city out. And they discover that Ai is much smaller than Jericho, both in its size and the number of people who are there. And so the spies report that not all of the Israelite warriors have to toil and struggle to take this city. If only 3,000 men went up the mountain, then the rest of the people would not have to be wearied. They're very confident that this is going to be an easy victory. However, disaster strikes. They are soundly defeated. In this rout, 36 of them are killed. The army flees from the gates of Ai. They go back down that mountain, and the army chases them until they get to Shebarim or the quarries. And the entire nation, the Israelites, are paralyzed with fear. Their hearts, their courage melt like water. What's interesting about the way it's described like that in verse 5 is that's exactly the opposite of what Rahab told the spies back in Joshua 2. Rahab, who was in Jericho, told them that I know the Lord has given you the land because the fear of you has fallen upon us, the Canaanites. And that all the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, they melt away before you. But now the tables have completely turned. Now the Israelite hearts are melting. Their advantage is completely lost. They thought it was going to be easy, and instead they lost. And they not only lost, they lost badly. Because now all the Canaanites know that Israel is not invincible. They can be defeated by a tiny city. Joshua responds to this embarrassing defeat with the traditional signs of humility. He bows down before the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's presence. And he and the elders of the people, they cover themselves with dust to show that they're humble, they're in mourning before God. In verses 7 through 9, Joshua cries out to the sovereign Lord. He wonders, why did God bring them across the Jordan River at all if they're just going to be defeated? Would they have been better off if they had just stayed on the other side of the river? The armies had been turned back by their enemies. And Joshua is afraid that all the Canaanites will be motivated by this defeat, that they'll come and they'll cut off, wipe out the Israelites. And as he says, he's worried that If all the people are gone, God's name would be dishonored. Now in this prayer, Joshua seems to start by blaming God before he switches and blames himself, and then he just mourns this lost advantage. 
Now, some have pointed out that, well, maybe Joshua should have prayed before he led the spies and the armies to attack Ai. Maybe he should not have been so pridefully certain of his victory. However, I don't think we should be too hard on Joshua here, because after all, we all have read verse 1. We know why the Israelites lost this battle. Joshua doesn't know this. To him, it just looks like God has randomly decided to abandon his people. God gave them Jericho. Joshua might have thought, well, the rest of it is going to be easier than that, and it would fall very quickly. If we're to criticize Joshua, we can find fault in his lack of faith in God's promises. Because God promised to bring his people into the land. And one defeat should not have led Joshua to doubt God's word. So what's happening here? What happened in this event? Well, one man's sin had a devastating result. Pastor Rhett Dotson, he puts it this way, sin angers God and hinders his work. Sin ignites the wrath of God. It brings defeat to the people of God. It hinders the progress of the work of God. It must, therefore, be dealt with by God. God knows all things. There is nothing he does not know. There is nothing he does not see. And that means that your sin, your rebellion against him cannot remain hidden forever. In Numbers 32, 23, Moses warns the Israelites, if you will not obey, if you will not do so, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure your sin will find you out. No matter how well a person thinks that they hide and cover up their sin, God knows and God sees. Hidden sin will not remain hidden forever. And when sin is revealed, the consequences can be far-reaching. Everyone in Israel is impacted by Achan's sin. To start, their mission stopped. They were fulfilling God's purpose. They were fulfilling God's plan to take the promised land. But his sin meant that their momentum, it ground to a halt. Their mission, their purpose had to stop because of one man's sin. And in the same way, our sin can distract our brothers and sisters in Christ from the mission and purpose that God has called them to. If there's a hole in one of the tires of your car, you're not going anywhere. If one part of a bicycle, one spoke is chained to a pole, you can't ride that bike. Sin stops us from completing God's mission. Achan's sin also discouraged God's people. Sin often brings discouragement and depression. In the moment, it feels really good, but after the fact, true children of God feel terrible. And when others learn of the sin, they are discouraged. It's demoralizing to learn that someone you respected has sinned. But worst of all, sin brings pain. And in Achan's case, it also brings death. 37 families would experience pain and death because of Achan's sin. Later, Achan's family will die, that's one. But don't forget the 36 families that lost husbands, fathers, and sons because of Achan's action. His selfishness brought grief to 36 families. He was responsible for their deaths. It's like someone being killed by a drunk driver. One person's sin brings death to someone else. 
uncovered sin can bring pain to your friends, your family, and your loved ones. And that pain can last for days, weeks, years, or maybe even decades. So here, God's mission stopped. The people were discouraged. 36 men died. All of this came from one little sin by one man. Sin has consequences. When one Christian sins, it can impact every other believer in their life. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, the Apostle Paul points out that your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Just a little leaven is needed to make bread rise. Any sin you commit will impact others. Sin never just harms you. Now, your sin might not cause 36 people to die, but it can bring extreme pain and suffering into the lives of others. That's why it's so important that each of us think about how what we do impacts others. Nothing you do affects only you. Now, it's here that I want us to be really careful with thinking about God's Word, because as I preach and as we think about this passage, it can be very easy for us to point to the sins of others and their devastating results. And I know that every person in this room has experienced pain from someone else's sin, at least at some point in your life. But friends, criticizing others is a very dangerous road to go down. Yes, what they did hurt. But each sin that we hide also has the capacity to hurt others. And so instead of talking about the damaging effects of other people's sins, I believe it's better for us to look inward. What sin are you holding on to that could hurt your family or your church? What personal sin do you excuse? Friend, there's no amount of excuses or self-justification to cover your sin. You might say, Pastor, well, I know it's wrong, but it's not really hurting anyone. And that might be the case for now, but it will not be that way forever. Eventually, sin will be revealed. People will find out, and they will be hurt by it. Or, maybe no person ever finds out, but then God will judge you for it on the last day. Each of us needs to learn it's far better to confess and turn from it the first time, turn from it now, rather than letting it grow and fester. Friend, your secret sin will have consequences. It's better to deal with a few consequences now than many more later. Turn from your sin. Confess it. Get it out of your life before it is too late. Yet even in this moment here, even in this moment of suffering in our scripture, we still see God's grace to sinners. God's grace to sinners. We see it multiple ways in these verses. The first way we see it is that God tells Joshua what the problem is. He does not leave Joshua in the dark. He tells Joshua, like his words, get up, stop laying down. There is work to be done. God says that the Israelites have transgressed. They've broken their covenant and agreement with him. Now we may ask, well, what, what command did they violate? Well, back in Joshua chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, we read this. They're about to attack Jericho, and Joshua says, Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you've set them apart, you take any of the devoted things. 
Because if you do that, you will make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction. You will bring trouble upon it. But if there's silver and gold, every vessel of bronze and iron, you're not to take them. They're holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. But instead of obeying this word, someone had stolen from the devoted things and lied by hiding their sin. Items that belonged to God were now hidden among his people. Now, God's not being harsh here. God was giving them the land. He was giving them everything in it. But he did want the people to dedicate some things, the things from this one city, dedicate them to him so they could remember what he had done. By forgetting to do that, Achan is saying that God's help is not needed in his life. He did not believe that God had given him everything that he needed. He thought he had to look out for himself because God would not take care of him. In short, Achan's sin is not that he stole something. His sin is that he did not believe God. He did not trust that God would take care of him. Well, because of this, in verse 12, God tells the Joshua that the Israelites, they're liable for their sin. They turn their backs because they have become devoted to destruction. God will no longer be with them unless they devote and set apart their sin. So God tells Joshua to consecrate, purify, sanctify the people. What's interesting about those words from verse 13, consecrate the people, that's the same thing the Lord told Joshua to do before they crossed the Jordan River. But this time, the situation's very different. Back in Joshua 3, 5, Joshua told the people to consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Then they were preparing for God's blessings. But now, they're preparing for God's judgment. God will reveal the things that were supposed to be devoted to him, that are now hidden in the midst of his people. These things must be removed. This disgraceful act is horrible and outrageous, and God's justice must be gone, must be done. So Joshua gets up early the next morning, and he begins a very lengthy process of finding the guilty culprit. He is looking for one man, from a crowd of at least two million people. Now, as we read through this, I'm not going to read it again. You may notice it was kind of repetitive. God said what he was going to do first, and then we just kind of read the whole thing again. But I think that's kind of the point. This was a repetitive, this was a long process. Joshua and the priest would use some type of lot or chance. God would indicate what direction they were to pursue. The first thing they do is they get all 12 tribes out and they use the lot or chance on each one and God identifies the tribe. Then they bring them near and they do the same thing with all the clans in that tribe. God points out the clan. Then they bring all the families and households from that clan together and God signals out the right one. And finally, they go through that family one by one until the lots fall on Achan. This whole process is an illustration of God's grace. As the little comic back there kind of references, Achan was given plenty of time to confess. This is a long process. It took probably hours. At any point during this process, Achan could have said, hey, time out, guys. The person you're looking for is me. But he didn't. He knew what was happening. He had time to come forward. But Achan was unrepentant. He did not take advantage of this period of God's grace. 
you know, perhaps things would have been different if Achan admitted his sin before he was caught. But we'll never know that. What we do know is that in his grace, God gives sinners time to turn from their sin. I think one of the best places this is described in Scripture is in the book of Romans, chapter 2. Paul asks, do you despise the riches of his, of God's kindness, his restraint and patience? Do you not recognize that God's kindness is intended to bring you to repentance? It's intended to make you turn from sin. If you are not a Christian and you're alive today, then God is giving you time to repent, to turn from sin. Please do not waste this opportunity. Once Achan is caught, Joshua tells Achan to give glory to God, praise him, honor him, make confession, tell the truth. And these words Joshua uses, particularly that idea of telling the truth or confessing by saying, give glory to God, you know, that's very similar to a call to repentance from the book of Jeremiah. In that passage, the prophet writes, give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you are hoping for light, he makes it into deep darkness and turns it into gloom. Give glory to God before that happens. If you do not know Jesus, now is the time that you have. You are not promised another year. You're not promised another month. You're not promised another day. Friend, you're not even promised another hour. God is being gracious and kind to you, but he will not continue to do so forever. In verse 20, Achan admits his sin, and he correctly realizes who his sin was really against. As he says, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. He had stolen from God. In reality, all sin is ultimately against God because he rules the world and everything in it. As King David would write, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Then Achan explains what happened to him in verse 21. He says, I saw a beautiful cloak, a robe from Shinar or Babylon. He saw 200 silver shekels or coins. He saw a golden bar or a golden wedge that weighed 50 shekels, weighed a little more than a pound. And he coveted or he wanted those things. And so he took them and then he buried them in the earth or the ground under his tent. What's really sad as we read this is how irrational Achan's actions are. He stole these things and then he hid them under his tent. He's not using them. He's not spending this money. If he tried to use these things, every person would know where they came from. It just doesn't make sense. But I suppose that's how sin is. It makes us make bad decisions. And in any case, the fact remains. Achan saw, he coveted or desired, and then he took. And I want to pause a minute on this verse because Achan's confession here is amazingly insightful. He says, I saw, I desired, I took. And that's the same pattern, the same operating procedure that sin always takes. They are steps to destruction. And you know, it's been that way since the beginning. Look at how the very first sin 
is described in Genesis 3.6. I've adjusted a few words. So when the woman, I put them in italics, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Eve saw, she desired, and she took. Saul desired, took. It's exactly what Achan said. In the New Testament, James 1, 14 and 15 describes the process in a very similar way. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. He sees something by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Again, that's exactly what happened to Achan. Lured, enticed, his desire, sin, even the death part would happen to Achan. But you know, this process is the same thing that happens to each of us. We see something or we think of something, and that silent thought, that sight we grasp, it becomes a desire, which then becomes sin. Again, uh, Pastor Rhett Dodson wrote this, it begins with a look either with your eyes or in your imagination. And if you do not counter that look, that passing thought, if you do not counter it immediately with desire, for with another look, another thought, another desire, well, then that first look will lodge in your mind. It will entice you to come back for more. That's why it's important for believers in Christ to do everything they can to remove sin from their lives. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The only guaranteed solution for combating thoughts of sin is to replace them with thoughts of Christ. Now, there are many practical steps that one can take to retrain your mind and focus on Christ. Recently, many men in this church went through a study called the Conquer Series, and in that class, we discussed how to apply this restraining of the mind to sexual sin issues. I, or any of our leaders or counselors, would be happy to help you in applying, replacing sinful desires with Christ, applying that principle to your life. But that's the key. You cannot just tell yourself to stop sinning, stop doing that. You have to replace that sinful desire with a greater desire and especially a greater desire for God. Well, finally, our passage shows us how God deals with sin, how God deals with sin. And our passage makes clear that God deals with sin by judgment. Joshua sends messengers to Achan's tent, and they find those stolen items exactly as he described them. They lay down, they spread out this evidence of the crime before the presence of the Lord. Then they take Achan, the things he stole, they take his family, everything he has, to the valley of Achor, which, as I said, means the valley of trouble. And Joshua asks Achan, why did you bring this trouble on Israel? He declares God is now bringing trouble on him. And then the Israelites throw stones at Achan, his family, and his animals until they are dead. They burn the corpses and place a pile of stones, a great heap, over him. And those stones remain there in the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, at least until this book was written. They served as a warning about the consequences of sin. 
And the Israelites remembered this. Later in this book, we read about something that would happen years later. Some Israelites are afraid that others have abandoned God. And this is what they say. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? Wrath fell upon the congregation of Israel. He did not perish alone for his iniquity. So that means that this terrible tragedy had the result God intended. And the very last verse says that the Lord turned from his burning anger. He's no longer angry because justice has been done. Now the Israelites can move forward with the mission God has given them. When sin has been dealt with, we can advance to what God has for us next. Sin held the Israelites back, but now that judgment has come, they can move forward. God deals with sin through judgment. Achan and his family were destroyed the same way the people of Jericho were killed. Where you are from or what people group you belong to has no bearing on how God deals with your sin. It doesn't matter what church you go to, God's judgment comes on unrepentant sin. Now we read this, and in our 21st century mind, these deaths seem harsh. But it's likely that Achan's family knew what he had done, and they were somewhat complicit in covering up his sin. But either way, Achan's theft, which he did to provide for himself and his family, it actually leads to their downfall. Sin brings suffering and judgment. God judges sin. His justice is always done. And this is a good thing because it means that every wrong in our life will be righted. We may not see it right away. We may not even see it in this lifetime, but God judges sin. In the end, he always does what is right. That should be a source of comfort when we are sinned against. That should also be a source of warning when we sin. Because if God always judges sin, that means he will judge us for our sin. The very beginning of verse 7 started with the word but. It was good news and then but. Let me bring one more but into this. This has been a bunch of bad news, but judgment is not the only way that God deals with sin. There's another way for God to judge your sins. And our passage hints at this because this passage is not the only time we read about this valley of trouble. In Hosea 2, God says this about the people of Israel. He says, therefore, I will allure her. I will bring her in to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards. And God says, I'm going to make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. God promised to bring his people back from the judgment of exile and to make the valley of trouble a place of hope. And friend, your troubling sin can be a place of hope too. Your sin can lead you to trust in the person and work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life, and then he died as a substitute for sin. He paid for the sin of those who trust in him. He took the judgment that their sins deserve. Unlike Achan, you do not have to be judged for your sin. God's judgment for your sin can fall on Jesus instead. In him, non-Christians can find salvation, and believers can find the strength to overcome their sinful desires. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, please ask me about it, or ask another Christian how you can know him. 
Your sin has consequences, but God gives grace. He can deal with your sin by judging you or by judging Jesus. If you do not know Jesus, then seek him. If you do know him, then look after his grace. Ask him to help you restrain, turn from your sin. Confess sin. Do not hide it. Praise God for sending his son to take the punishment for your rebellion. Friends, let's worship him now because he alone is worthy.